Imagine what it'd be like if we were really curious about each other. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Relational Spirituality, the weekly podcast of LargerStory.com, the podcast that sees all relationships as spiritual and all spiritual formation as relational. Now time to move into the most important part of this material, the meat of the material. We're looking to see what are the questions that God wants us to be asking because He's already answered them. And we're going to be looking at that now. We're going to start with um, question one, of course, who is God? We have seven questions of spiritual theology. The beginning question one is so vitally important for obvious reasons, but among those, I want to say this, that the way you answer question one is going to shape how you answer two, three, four, five, six, and seven because who is God determines pretty much everything. So this question is not unimportant to say the least. So I've titled this talk, Who is God? Part one, we're gonna take three sessions on thinking through who is God. And that of course is not near enough, but it's maybe all that I understand, little I know. Who is God? Part one. And I subtitle it this way, the answer that changes everything. Who is God? The answer that changes everything. But as I get into this material, let me begin with a little different take on it, a little different question maybe. With no careful thought, what immediately comes to your mind when someone says the word God? What comes to your mind? Now, I know very little of Islamic theology, but I would presume, and I could be wrong obviously, that when the word God is said to a devout Muslim, the first word that might come to mind certainly is um, something like powerful, almighty, strong, in control. But what about Christians? We worship a powerful, almighty, strong, sovereign God, but do we relate to Him primarily as our almighty God? Does that centralize our understanding of who God is? Or is there another way of thinking about who God is that doesn't exclude that, but centralizes something else? Our answer matters. It starts, it shapes our understanding of what it means to know God and to relate with Him. How we think about God shapes that. Now, over the last, oh, decade, I suppose, I've had the opportunity in leading some fairly large conferences of four or 500 people to explore this question in a bit of, a bit of a unique way. I've asked audiences to get out their paper and pencil and to play a little word game with me, word association game. And I would say the word God I wouldn't tell them what I'm going to say, but I'm going to tell them I'm going to give you a word and I want you to write down the first word that occurs to you. And so they all get ready, they get their pencil and paper out and then I say, all right, here's the word, whatever occurs to you, write down your first response. The word is God. What do you suppose I get from that? With all Christian people coming to a conference that I'm leading, they're all looking to know more about Christianity. As I've sorted through the many answers that I've gotten and I've looked at them pretty carefully over the years, the responses generally fall into one of two categories. Words that communicated relational distance were the most common words. Words that communicated relational distance were most common, but there also were words that communicated relational involvement. What do I mean by that? In the distance category, the words that I received on my pieces of paper that were sent in to me were words like almighty, creator, king, judge, all pointing to truth, there's no question about it, about who God is, but in the way we understand those words, they're not words that invite us, they're not words that draw us into, 
They're words that maybe keep us from a distance, thinking how wonderful and splendid whoever this God is really is. But a distance is established if you limit yourself to those words. Words in the second category are rather predictable. Words of relational involvement included words like compassionate, merciful, forgiving, and of course, loving. And they're words that when used of God would tend to draw us closer to him. Now, those are the words that I heard in those two different categories. But in the hundreds, and I think there were hundreds, and the hundreds of responses that I read, one word was conspicuously missing. Can you guess what it was? Think how often we hear God spoken of as Father, Son, and Spirit. Every Christian's familiar with those three words, Father, Son, and Spirit. But no one in all the times I've asked this question came up with the word Trinity. That was never the response. And I wonder, based on that, I just wonder how many of us think of God as fundamentally a relational group of persons. Is that how we think of God? Or is He God? Or do we take seriously Father, Son, and Spirit and recognize the implications of that? Are there three distinguishable, equally divine persons who are thoroughly enjoying themselves in the community of love, three persons who eagerly invite us to join their party? Is that how we think of God? And the answer from my little exploration with many people in seminars was not that at all. It seems to me it's very easy to think of the doctrine of the Trinity. When's the last time a, a pastor advertised, I will now come up with a doctrine of the Trinity? And I wouldn't think attendance would increase at that point. Maybe it wouldn't. But it's very easy to think of the doctrine of the Trinity as nothing more than a doctrine, nothing more than a truth that we agree on and it belongs in the church doctrinal statement, but is it a truth that has any real bearing on how we live in our relationships with spouse, children, friends, whomever? Three persons, one God, talk about a mystery. Three persons, one God, makes no sense, incomprehensible. And how many people say, because it's so incomprehensible, it's so far beyond what our very finite minds can grasp in this infinite world of God, that let's let the theologians worry about that. We just love Jesus and the Spirit of God works in us and God's a Father, let's get on with our lives as opposed to seeing the incredible implications that come out of adopting a very clear Trinitarian theology. If we were to want to summarize the doctrine in very simple language, we would say that one God exists in three divine persons who live eternally in tension-free community. Let me say it again, just to get the doctrine, the first thought of it down a little more clearly, that there's one God, but He exists in three divine persons who live eternally, always have, always will, intention-free community. Now that has to at least include, if not centralize, something about who God is. But now think about this. Another question occurred to me as I was pondering this who is God and asking people to come up with the word that comes to your mind when I say God. And I've asked another question at some of these conferences. I've said, let me ask you to wrap your minds around what you cannot wrap your mind around. I want you to just imagine for a moment what it was like for God to have been God before He created anything. Before there were planets, stars, sun, moon, the earth, people, dogs, anything. Before there was anything, because everything but God was created. So what was it like for God to be God before there was anything else, there was only God? What would you guess the common answer I get to from that? Tell me a word that comes to your mind when you envision what you can't fully envision, of course, 
There's God, but there's no one else and nothing else. And the most common word that I heard, probably 90% of the time, would you expect this? Lonely. That misses the entire point. Lonely. God, if we start thinking about the Trinity in ways that I want to develop in the next little bit, we're going to realize that God is an intensely happy community of loved and loving persons. Now, among other great thinkers, C.S. Lewis and a German theologian named Jürgen Moltmann have pointed out that if God is not a community of persons, now follow this thought carefully. This comes from Lewis and Moltmann. Other people have said it as well. If God is not a community of persons, then he must have become a loving God when he created someone to love. So God was not love eternally. Of course God was love eternally because there were persons to love and to be loved. That was going on in Trinity Pass. So when we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, if we don't take it seriously, then we're not going to have any sense of God being loved until he created us so he could then have someone to love. And it seems very clear and rather important to get into this high thinking here for a little bit, that we've got to realize that as we talk to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we realize that love has been going on eternally. In John 17, 24, Jesus was reveling in his Father's love. And he said this in John 17, 24, quote, you loved me before the world began. God is love. That's his fundamental existence, his nature, his being. So we know without doubt, because of that one verse, many others as well, we know that before there was anyone but God was a father loving his son, the son was loving his father, two divine persons loving each other. And maybe we get our minds around that a little bit with the metaphor of father and son. But how about the third person, the Trinity? How about the divine spirit? Is he like the father and son, a real person as well as the father and the son? In Matthew 3, in verse 16 and 17, we're told that when John the Baptist lifted Jesus up from the water, a dove appeared. And the dove fluttering about as he was coming down, and this is significant, we're told that the dove, who were very clear in the scriptures, represented the Holy Spirit, in fact, was the Holy Spirit, took the form of a dove. We're told that the dove remained on Jesus when he descended. Matthew saw it this way. The Spirit of God, I'm reading it now from Matthew, Matthew 3, 16 and 17, the Spirit of God descended like a dove and coming to rest on him. When the dove came on Jesus, he landed on Jesus and he stayed there. John is even more explicit. In chapter 6, 32 and 33, he twice reported that he saw the dove descend and remain on Jesus. Now you may know something about two kinds of birds that belong to the same category, pigeons and doves. Now, pigeons, if much about pigeons, you've been to England and Trafalgar Square where they have dozens and dozens of pigeons, probably thousands. When a pigeon lands on you, you can't shake them. The pigeon will just stay there. A dove, similar to a pigeon in many ways, but not in this way. When a dove lands on someone, if that someone moves, the dove just flutters off very quickly. The dove landed on Jesus and remained. Why? because there was nothing that was moving in the soul of Jesus that violated the love of the Spirit. So the dove remained. John made a big point out of that. Because the Spirit of God found nothing in Jesus 
that was moving in a direction other than the direction the Spirit was moving, the Spirit remained on Jesus in the baptism. And further notice this, as we just introduce our thinking about the Trinity, it's only Luke that tells us in the three baptismal records in the Gospels, only Luke tells us that that when Jesus came up out of the water, he was praying. The other two accounts don't mention he was praying. But Luke tells us he was praying. And the word for praying that's translated praying most literally means, I'll catch this, wishing forward. Jesus is coming out of the water, wishing forward. Can you speculate on what he was wishing forward to? Why did he come in the first place? What was the point of his coming into earth? Coming to earth as a man to be incarnate. What was he talking about? And why, when he came up out of the water praying, why in response to his praying, in response to his wishing forward, why it was then that the father spoke how much he loved his son? What's the correlation there? Could it be that the father was expressing love for the son still fully divine, but now also fully human, by giving him the spirit of their relationship. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes this about the Holy Spirit. The spirit of love is, from all eternity, a love going on between the Father and the Son. I think that's rather radical. The spirit of love is, from all eternity, a love going on between the Father and the Son. He is a person. He's not merely a force. Is the spirit this actual person? Or is he merely a forcer of passion? Is there far more to him than that? Again, I read from Lewis. Listen to this quote. The love between the father and the son is so alive that the spirit of their relationship is an eternal person. The spirit proceeding from the love poured out from the father into the son and the love returned from the son into the father. That is the Holy Spirit. Now, With all that, the question that has to come to all of our minds, so what? Why does all this matter? What's the point of even thinking deeply into the sphere of the mystery of the Trinity? Two verses, at least, hint at the answer of thinking through these matters of the Father and the Son and the Spirit is the love that proceeds between the Father and the Son. One verse in Romans 5 and chapter 5 and verse 5, Paul tells us there that God pours His love out of Himself and into us into our hearts, well, by the Spirit. So that tells me that there's something within me that is utterly remarkable. The Spirit of God, the love that exists between the Father and the Son is now a part of my soul. 1 Peter 1, 9, 2 Peter 1, 19, 1, 1 chapter 4, I'm sorry, 2 Peter 1, 4, Peter says something just that takes us to new remarkable levels that beyond what we can imagine, that the good news that changed Peter into a disciple who sacrificed his life for the gospel, tells us that this good news enables us, and I quote, to share in his divine nature. Now think about what that means. The Holy Spirit, who is the love between the Father and the Son, as a real person, is now in us. The divine nature of love is now part of us. And because of the cross, we're now enabled to love others with the exact same love that eternally exists between the Father and the Son. Perfectly, not until we get to glory, but increasingly, yeah, that's a possibility because the Spirit is living within me. One more quote from Lewis. I like Lewis, as perhaps you can tell. One more quote. See if you can get at the idea that there's motion, there's relationality going on in the Trinity. God is not a static thing, Lewis says. 
but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, a kind of dance. The whole dance or drama of this three-personal life is to be played out in each one of us. Each one of us has got to take his place in that drama. That's the larger story that I'm talking about. There is no other way to the happiness for which we were created. Now let that sink in. There's no other way to the happiness for which we were created than to join the drama between the Father and the Son because the Spirit is within us. If that sinks in, and if I stopped right here, we can at least begin to see that the doctrine of the Trinity is central to our understanding of what it means to love our spouse and our kids and our friends. What would it mean to, just a coin of phrase, to dance with the Trinity into somebody else's life? What would that look like? It's going to require the rest of this course to grasp even a little of all that means to enter into a relationship with our eternally relational God. And if we see God simply as the ruler, which he is, if we see him merely as the ruler who gives us principles to live by, which he does, but if we fail to see him as a community of love and our spiritual formation then gets reduced to simply following the rules, which we should do, but once we see him as a lover, everything changes. Once we see him as a lover, we see him as somebody who invites us to relate with each other person, with the divine nature his spirit has given us. And that's going to be involving and moving us to our spiritual formation. A couple more side thoughts as I introduce the topic of the Trinity. Swiss theologian Karl Barth noted that whenever Hitler, Adolf Hitler, whenever he spoke about God, he called him the Almighty. Hitler had no conception of God as a relational being. God was the Almighty God. And in Barth's words, nothing more than a supreme concept of power. Divorce God's power from his love, as Hitler did, and spiritual formation becomes a plan to use God's power to accomplish what we want, which is what Hitler did. So part one of our question, who is God, really comes to this from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. The one God... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's Deuteronomy 6, 4. The one God is a community of three fully divine persons, each the God of love. Now that answer, unpacked and pondered, changes how we live and relate. The answer, therefore, is spiritual theology, a theology worth thinking about. Now let me just in passing mention five books that I have gleaned from in trying to come to some understanding of Trinitarian theology. There's many more, but these are the five that have meant the most to me. I'll mention them briefly. Daryl Johnson has a book called Experiencing the Trinity. Ergon Moltmann has a very chewy book, as I like to say, a very difficult book to read, called The Trinity and the Kingdom. First is Daryl Johnson, Experiencing the Trinity. Second is Ergon Moltmann, The Trinity and the Kingdom. Third, Stanley Grenz, Now with the Lord, has a wonderful book called The Social God and the Relational Self. Robert Lethem has the classic textbook on the Holy Trinity, and that's why the book is titled The Holy Trinity. And Michael Reeves has perhaps the most accessible book called Delighting in the Trinity. Let me take it just one step further in thinking about the Trinity in this first of three presentations. Getting your mind just a picture, just imagine you're seeing three words on a board, Father, Son and Spirit. Now just look at there's the Father, there's the Son, there's the Spirit. Now if each word 
refers to a distinguishable defined person who is each fully God, then are there three gods? Many people have believed that over the years. So stay confused with me for a minute. But if the Son proceeded from the Father, as Hebrew tells us in Hebrews 1.3, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, then some people have concluded from that verse that Jesus was created by God and therefore is secondary to God and not fully God Himself. Or maybe if that isn't true, maybe there really is just one God, but He appears in three different forms, but there's not really any distinguishable persons, but the three different manifestations of the one God. I've just uh, recited three heresies that I'm going to do my best to avoid in the rest of the teaching I'm going to do on the Trinity. The three heresies, number one, are tritheism. There's three gods. Arianism from Arius, a theologian from the early centuries, who said Jesus is not really God. is a teaching made popular in the fourth century. And then modalism, that he's one person who appears in three different modes. But those are all heresies, and I believe they are. Then that leaves us with a question that we're going to take up in our next session. So what is the oneness of God? He's one God, we're not going to deny that, but He's three distinguishable persons. Does even thinking about that matter? It's going to give us a headache, maybe. Is it worth the headache to even think about that? But I'm going to suggest that the more clearly we can answer the question, who is God, the more we'll be able to get a vision for what it means to dance with this three-person community of one God and to be formed by the Spirit to resemble Jesus for the glory of the Father. Trinitarian thought. And living into that vision is what it means to join the larger story of God and to discover the joy that our souls long to know. So I'm leaving you with one question. What is the oneness of God if we can agree that there are three distinguishable persons? What makes God one? If you like what you heard today, hit the like button just below then come back by subscribing to our podcast channel. For more resources on relational spirituality, go to our website at largerstory.com.